Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Today is our audio day. So if you have questions about audio in the first hour or the second hour, uh, definitely throw those in. Um, but you, we've got a lot of questions there. So ask a lot, ask your questions, but also vote on those questions. Um, remember that each day kind of has, we have more experts in some days than others. And so today is a great day to ask audio questions, but you can of course ask any questions around digital media production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on today. We're going to have Cheryl Ottenritter and, uh, and she is going to be talking from Ott House Audio and she'll be talking about her expertise in surround sound mixing and Dolby, including Dolby Atmos. Very excited to have Cheryl on. So uh, if you've got questions about Atmos, or surround sound, um, and of course for Ott House Audio, uh, definitely ask those questions for the second hour. Make sure to tag those. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Samuel Nordvik starts us off this morning from Norway. He says, what are the top technology advances that have been game changers in your lifetime and have impacted your work? Well, okay, I think this is a very popular question and both in answering and, uh, and asking. Uh, Marty? Hmm. Well, I think digital audio, you know, digital mixers, DAWs, I think that was that changed everything in in audio production for radio and television and field production. Yeah, it changed everything. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I agree with that, but both for audio and for video, for me, that was a transformational time when I started having access to digital video signals. Before that, all of my video in the analog era had that kind of milky darkness instead of black. And I remember the first time I saw even an inexpensive digital video system. I did a shoot for Boys and Girls Clubs uh, back where I lived once, and there was a young young man, young African-American man who I, I shot and I thought, my gosh, the background, the skin tones, everything just looks gorgeous with this new digital format. And it started changing my entire thinking about managing light and recording it. Good, John. PC revolution, internet revolution, um, crypto, and now AI, those four things. Thank you, Courtney. I agree with um, uh, Marty's, you know, the transition from analog to digital audio made a huge difference. It made it, uh, you didn't have to worry about uh, all the analog problems of wow and flutter and tape noise. And it made editing so much simpler. You could do it once you could do it inside a computer. And it made uh, compositing and lossless mixing. And the same thing happened uh, several years later when we went to digital video. When we transitioned from the old analog standard def into digital video, suddenly producing commercials where you could layer 15 different layers on top without any loss of video quality. Previous to that, you had to dub and add to that dub and dub and dub, and there'd be loss at every dubbing stage. When you could finally get digital video, you could composite, you know, 26 layers, and the 26th pass would look as clean as the first. And that was the major. Here, you go, Jeffrey. Uh, I, and I think uh, it's going to be more about the USB uh, audio, of of course, uh, uh, analog to digital. Uh, if it wasn't for USB technology, we wouldn't be where we were. I, I remember first podcast, I'd, I had like a big mixer and XLR microphones going in via uh, analog out inputs. And imagine what we would be, where we would be if we were still on Firewire and more proprietary uh, uh, inputs like that. It would, we probably wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for Thunderbolt and USB uh, standardization. Thank you, Rashid. 
For me, it's going to be the screen reader, and it's in many forms. On the Windows side, you have JAWS. Um, on the Apple side, you have VoiceOver. And the technology behind a screen reader, to just think of it in that terms, that has brought us, let's say, Descript, where you could use your voice to you know, edit and things. But it's the technology of text-to-speech engines and how uh, typing things or how a... Uh, a Android or Apple device or any computing device might look at the text and read it back out to you. But I think just the back end of what that technology was birthed, you know, the birth of that technology to where we are today and the advancements of taking now video and images and being able to describe things to you that way. So I think that's a, uh, a really significant tool that has uh, really impacted me. Go ahead, Courtney. The thing I've left out is after the transition to digital is the transition from tape-based to disc-based. That changed everything. You no longer have the, the tyranny of the run-out of the reel, you know. Wait, do I have enough tape left on this reel to make this next recording? I don't know. Now it's on a hard drive, and it's like three days later, we might need to change the hard drive. Yeah, I, I think that for me, I was trying to think of the things that, were, that I saw them, and I was just like, oh. You know, like, you know, like this is going to be huge. And I think that, you know, obviously the internet, I remember turning on a modem and just realizing I could connect to things all over the world was something that got me really excited. Um, also, uh, in tooth in photogrammetry, which I started in the early 90s. Um, and when I saw that you could take photographs and turn them into 3D models, even though it was very manual, it was a big deal to me. Um, also, in 2000, I think, I don't remember when it was. I think it was probably 2006 or 2007, maybe. Or maybe it was a little earlier than that. But we did FaceTime. I did a FaceTime, too, with Hanif Abdul-Razul in, in Tanzania. He's a friend of mine there. And it was right after FaceTime had been released uh, on the computer. And we were talking to each other on the other side of the world. And it was 15 frames a second in this tiny little postage stamp. But it, it, I was, like, just enthralled by that by that op opportunity. And now we're here doing this every day. I, was, I would notice that in the for those of you watching, there's a pre-show and there's people that are uh, making sure that everybody's ready for the show and everything else. And uh, this morning we had, I believe, we had someone from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, someone from uh, uh, Manila in the Philippines, and someone from Minnesota. <laughs> like they were all. I, I just it was something that struck me as I was sitting there. I was like, the prep team is literally from you know three different continents. It's kind of amazing. Anyway, next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York is up. He says, morning, guys. With the workflow of two separate operators, one controlling the graphics play out and one for camera control, would you recommend two separate stream decks or on one MIMO live instance on a Mac Mini? Thanks. Go, go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, you can do two separate uh, stream decks on one computer. If you're running two people on one computer, it, it might be, it might be if you can do it, put them on two separate machines, but it definitely can be done. Yeah, I don't think you could do that with Nemo. I think you'd need them both to talk to the same machine. So I think that you're probably, it just depends on what, what you're doing for camera control. So if you can control those cameras separately, it's always, in my opinion, better to have more smaller machines <laughs> than one big one. Um, but if you, if you need to control that camera from that software, you would need to probably be on the same one. Uh, next question. David Brady in New York City is up next, trying to get my head around using buses or are aux sends the same in SoundDesk? From a high level, what are the same? Uh, what are some of the practical uses? Would using a bus be applicable to applying effects to a bank of sources? Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, so buses are aux sends. They are the terms are somewhat interchangeable. Uh, it's it's it is indeed a way 
to send a group of uh, selected inputs to a particular output that's not the main output. And there are a number of uses for this. Um, it's used very often with effects. So you can send, you can select a number of inputs to send to an effect, such as a reverb, bring the output of the reverb back into a different input on the mixer so that you can blend the output of the effect into the main output. You can also use them as outputs to go to different places. Um, we use them on stage for sending to um, <clears throat> stage monitors. We uh, I use them use them yesterday. I had the main outputs going to loudspeakers in a room, but then I have buses going out to broadcast mix to Zoom mix minus, for example. So they're very flexible. Um, ways to use buses, but they are essentially different mixes that you can create in the mixer. Soundesk is a virtual mixer that lives in the computer that allows you to take various inputs, audio inputs to the computer, and then set up multiple outputs. Let's go, let's go ahead with the next question. Ian Alford in London, England, what types of products are you most hoping to see come out around NAB? Go ahead, Jeffrey. But the, the only announcements that I haven't really heard from is Canon, and there's been a lot of rumors on Canon uh, uh, increasing their cinematic line a little bit. Uh, I think the biggest thing is just going to be software. It's going to be AI, and AI this and AI that. So we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of programs uh, that are touting that, and whether they're actually true AI or what, uh, that's a different story. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. I, I you know every time I go to NAB, I'm always trying to figure out what I'm. You know, what is the new thing that I'm looking for? I think that remote transmission, much of what we get in Zoom, but I think there's going to be a lot of movement in how that gets done. You know, so who does that? How does it get done? How do we connect people? Uh, I think it's going to be important. I think that these chips are getting a lot better, um, you know, with what we're, what we're seeing here. So, you know, a lot of smaller cameras that are less expensive that are making a big, you know, that are making a big impact. So um, I think it's going to be, you know, a, a fascinating NAB. And I think that the thing I get most, most excited about with NAB is being surprised. <laughs> so what, you know, we're going to be looking around and looking for things that we didn't expect to see as well. The next question. Jens Olson, Sandpoint, Idaho, trying to connect a pan tilt zoom camera to an ATEM extreme using HDMI Ethernet adapters. I just get blue screen when going into the ATEM. Works into a monitor. I've swapped every cable. Pan tilt zoom into ATEM also works. What are your thoughts? He's got a Go link there. Go ahead, Jeffrey. It's most likely the frame rate on this. These these devices, uh, they're cheap, and you can get them on Amazon. Get them uh, there within two days, but then. You find that they just don't work. I've 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 had too many failures with these types of devices. I did find one that I use regularly, and it does not move at all. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I don't trust them at all. So I always have a decimator or something like that uh, close by to uh, to do the actual uh, encode. Yeah, and what I would say is I would not build a pipeline. I mean, using something like an OBSBOT converter from a USB to a, to, you know, from USB to HDMI, is something I'd probably hack away and I'd have it in there just in case I wanted to use it. But I would not build a pipeline around webcams going into an HDMI. Like that's, I just don't think that you're, I think you're going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, if I were you, I'd to, to troubleshoot this, I'd take the output of the HDMI after it's gone over that to Ethernet converter and plug it into an MDHX and see what's coming out resolution and frame rate wise because that thing digitizes the HDMI signal and converts it into TCP IP. And it may be downscaling it to 720p to run longer distances. So that may be what your problem is. It may be changing the resolution on across the Ethernet and coming out at a different resolution. That's why it'll work into a monitor, which will easily switch to 720, but the ATEM will only accept 1080. Next question. Next one comes to us from Harshid Trevidi in Daytona Beach here on the panel. What are your thoughts on this clip in the audio and video aspects? And he has a link there. Go ahead, Courtney. Sounded fine to me. I looked at it um, um looks something like this, uh, Tammy Duckworth. And she looks like she's inside one of those uh, Senate insert rooms, video rooms that they have in the Capitol. Maybe Alex could probably has used some of these and can enlighten us on their use because it has a, a picture of the, uh, the Capitol outside the window. And uh, she's lit well. She's, uh, I don't think it's a green screen in any effect. So I think it's, it does pretty well. It, it's a little bit muffled in sound, but it I can't tell if she's got a uh, lavalier on or if, because of the pattern on her dress, it, it kind of blends in. Uh, or if they're using a boom microphone. kind of sounds like a boom microphone, but it's perfectly acceptable, I think. It's Go ahead, really Harshi. Harshi. Yeah, my, my thoughts exactly with the audio. Um, it, it was intelligible <clears throat> in comparison to um, other bits that I've heard. And what's interesting is just uh, with different groups I'm involved with, they're trying to help some of these folks, uh, especially uh, within with that, like Zoom and how to get meetings started and things like that and managing it. And I'm glad that they're actually paying attention to this stuff and AV, especially with the microphone or the sound and the video. And it's really important. So I'm glad that they're paying, they're paying attention to that. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. One thing I forgot to mention is she does her own uh, descriptive audio at the beginning. She she describes, you know, what she's sitting in front of, what she's wearing, what she, you know, how she looks, who she is, et cetera, uh, for those that are sight impaired. Yeah, I think I think it's okay. It felt like, again, it, 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 it was fine. Um, I think she's competing with her background a lot or the background's competing with her. It's not out of focus enough and it's not... You know, it's it's the same uh, level, and so it, it competes with her a little bit, and so she blends into that. I think having the door, I, I think the idea behind the door is that you kind of hint that you're there at the Capitol. I think it's most likely, that's most likely an office. Uh, I do think that they, you know, her office most likely. Um, and uh, I, I, it's it's fine. Um, I do think that she needs, she either needs to get better at write, reading a teleprompter or not read one, but it's not, she's not, she's got that kind of dead eye uh, read, you know, read look on her face, which is, you know, I think it's really problematic. I, I think that teleprompters are really, really useful when you're good at using them. <laughs> you know, and so, but if you're not good at using them, it's better to it's better to do the YouTube thing where you're cutting lots. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do if you're gonna do something else, because it's just it's really uh, it's hard. I, I think I'm fine. I'm finding it harder to watch people just turn a teleprompter on and try to read um, without really being able to nail it. And um, I have a hard time even watching news, news people read it, but I think it's, you know, in local news. I think once they get to national, I find that they're pretty good at it. So I think that that's, that's the only thing that I would say there as far as, as, far as that process goes. Now, next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand is up with this one. I have my TV RCA connector out into my Xenix QX1222 uh, USB mixer. 
into the RCA two-track in, typical for a CD player or DAT recorder. It over-modulates a bit. Are TVs considered line out, or where should I plug the RCA of the TV into the mixer? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, they are considered line out. They're high impedance line out, and you've got it going into a high impedance input. Uh, the difference maybe you don't a lot of times you don't have a lot of control over the levels on those tape return those tape inputs the RCA inputs on that mixer. Uh, maybe a better solution would be to get an adapter to go from RCA to quarter inch, and plug it in in one of the quarter inch line ins uh, in one of the channel strips, and that way you have a lot more control over the level and the gain structure uh, of that coming back in. Uh, to your mix. They, those two-track inputs are really designed just for monitoring playback if you're recording onto a, a reel-to-reel recorder. That's what they were used for originally. And then you could play it back uh, by uh, hitting that to play back the tape and get it hear it through the uh, monitor system. So it's not necessarily designed for inputting into the mixer, although there's a button to do that, to take the tape in into the mix. Go ahead, Marty. And generally speaking, anything with an RCA connector is going to be set up for a minus 10 dB level um, output as well as input. Now, the TV could um, either have uh, that output connector set to be variable level that will change with your remote control as you go up and down on volume, or it can be set at a preset level, in which case the volume control on your remote won't have any effect. Um, so, you know, there you could be overdriving the output if it's set to variable level. And then the input to the mixer, if you can control the volume on that input, uh, you'd want to check that as well. So just to make sure that the output level is right and the input level is good, uh, you should uh, you should be able to avoid over-modulating that. Next question. Next one comes to us from Harshid Trivedi again in Daytona Beach. SSL, Solid State Logic, has another product they've thrown into the game, a microphone. Yes, another USB mic. What do you think? And they've got a link to it there. Oops, sorry, uh, go ahead, Courtney. I looked at it. It's, uh, it's interesting. It looks like a boundary microphone, but when you look inside underneath, uh, it's got four uh, capsules probably cardioid capsules that are kind of pointing up at a 45-degree angle, usually a boundary mic. The uh, capsules are facing the the uh, uh, surface that you're setting it onto. Uh, so this uses a DSP inside the uh, inside the unit to steer the audio and to set it from you know single-person, multi-person, group, music, etc. I think it just changes the EQ and does a little uh, psychoacoustic mixing to try and uh, change the pickup pattern of the four inputs into something that's usable. It's only $149, so I was surprised at how cheap it is. But uh, So at that price, you could buy it and dry it. I go ahead, Bill. I'm always interested when some of these classical names and SSL, Solid State Logic, used to do uh, very high-end, rarefied high-end mixing consoles that were in some of the biggest studios around the world. You know, you, you fast forward 20, 30, 40 years, they're different companies in a lot of ways. Um, I'm thinking of brands like Marantz that had a huge reputation in their tube amplifiers back in the day. And then 20 years later, they were kind of a mid-price line. And I think the company had changed hands a couple of times. I'm not 
not saying there's anything wrong with solid state logic products or something, but I do think it's a different era. And I'm always, I always wonder just a little bit when somebody, instead of creating a new name for a product, tries to get some of the cachet of an old, brilliant name and attach it to a new product. It could be completely fine, but I don't think SSL today is the same as the SSL company from 20, 30 years ago. Now it has to stand on its own and prove itself, and I hope this does. Good morning. Can't hear you, Marty. My, uh, my first reaction when I saw this uh, question was, um, SSL is, you know, they make extraordinary studio mixers. What are they doing building a desktop conferencing microphone um but as i look at this page uh one of the you know one of the biggest drawbacks of these uh tabletop microphones or using boundary microphones is that they are very sensitive to any kind of vibration on the table that they're sitting on you know you tap on it and you can transfers right to the microphone uh, but when you look at this thing there are it's extremely well built there are multiple points of suspension to isolate it from the the surface it's on and it looks like there are four microphones uh, on an angle um, and it's using digital signal processing dynamics control noise reduction uh it's a very interesting product um and very well priced for you know for what it looks like it is so if desktop microphone is what you're looking for for a conference table um or even podcasting perhaps um is certainly something to try good jeff and I think the the other thing that's interesting about this <clears throat> is it, it reinforces what we're seeing more and more of, which is something being a USB mic does not inherently mean it's junk anymore. That was the case for the most part early on, but but all these companies, as everyone's pointed out, you know, SSLs are really well respected and still make great audio interfaces, USB audio interfaces, and all these companies saw what the Yeti did and how they blew away the market of USB microphones. And, and that's what everyone thinks, you know, they're almost like the Kleenex. So all these companies and well-respected companies, because there's nothing inherent about a USB microphone that prevents it from being good. They just didn't used to be, but as things continuously get small and all this DSP and, and all the interfacing uh, and DACs are all on chip and they're tiny and, and low energy, uh, you're gonna, we're going to see more and more of these really uh, well-respected companies putting out great products that are USB and it's easy for consumers. And if you're in a business, an office, this is great. I will say that I have, I've heard very little audio um, of a person speaking where the mic is more than 18 inches away from them that I want to listen to. <laughs> so, so like almost none in my life. So, so I think that that's the, the only concern I have with it, with this is that I just, you know, I don't think it'll be, it, it'll be fine. I maybe, um, but, but it, it won't be great. Uh, next, and, next question. And if I could just real quick, um, what we're seeing is folks, you know, just turning on like their laptop microphone if they're in a conference room and we're all trying to hear everyone over that one microphone. This is hopefully at least better than that. 
Yeah, a little bit. I just the the, the, the problem is with with a conference call a conference rooms is the entire design of the room, um, and until they fix that, we're just going to have a lot of. I, I I spent a decade listening to about four hours a day of conference rooms. And so I'm bitter and angry. <laughs> so, so I think that's probably also it. I just look at conference rooms like if someone's going to be in a conference room, I don't want to be in the meeting. Generally, I, I will. I'll put up with it, but I won't do it on do it do it uh, <laughs> willingly. Uh, next question comes from Maxfield Hunt out of San Francisco, and he says, "How did the Mukana implementation go in the less structured generative AI broadcast? What could have worked better?" You know, so it didn't work very well, um, and and it, it was interesting. The uh, what we what we learned there from it was that you know here people it's really easy for people to join, and you just but we're very cryptic about it. We talk about going across the rickety bridge and up the, you know, and uh, and that was uh, the problem with that was that people would just go, hey, you can go to this thing, and then it just joined Makana, and there was no uh, splash page. So when we did another event with Justine Ezerick and um, the, on the Michael Krasny show on Friday, we had a splash page, which worked a lot better. <laughs> so so we added added just another page so that you know, hey, you came to the right place. Here's a big enter button. And when you click on it, then we go back to asking you for what you need. But it was a little bit more designed uh, as far as that ingest. We've been so you know cryptic about it. And a lot of times there are other splash pages for when our clients use it, there's another page in between. It's not the raw. We provide that raw input, but we don't necessarily do it that way. So, so I think that was the... Uh, the learning there. And so you'll see us do that more often as we continue to uh, test a more public version of uh, of Mokana. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. And Douglas says, has anyone had any experience with the Yamaha RU-IO16D Dante slash USB audio interface? If I can trade in my Wave Sound Grid hardware, I'm looking for it, uh, at looking at it as an alternative. And he's got a link there to it. Good morning. I can't hear you, Marty. Sorry. Um, I think this is another example of a company that um, is uh, well-founded in getting into a, a slightly different market. This is a, a, a two, well, it's got two microphone inputs. Uh, it's an audio interface like we've seen many others, except it has some really interesting features. It's got Dante built into it with a 16 by 16 interface, but it's also a, uh, a VST host uh, for, for hosting effects and such, which can be um, very useful if you're doing non audio mixing, if you're like one, if you're doing streaming or doing something else that's where you typically don't have a DAW in line to host VST effects uh, you could use this thing. So it's a, it's a very interesting product. I don't know if it's a, a suitable substitute for Wave Sound Grid. Um, I think you need to look at it uh, for its own merits. Next question. Next one comes from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was one of the first quadraphonic, and he put that in quotes, releases. The new 50-year remastered on YouTube don't have the equipment, but can any audiophile comment on this WRT audio format and so forth? And he's got a link there to it on YouTube. Go ahead, Courtney. I don't know about the WRT audio format. Uh, quad re uh, released in the early 70s, quadraphonic ST quad, they used to call it, uh, was uh, a matrixed encode of four channels into two stereo channels, and then they made records recorded uh, in this uh, matrix encoded. And you needed an SQ matrix decoder in your receiver to decode it back to quadraphonic again. 
there was, uh, they finally approved FM broadcast in Quadraphonic using the SQ matrix, but it died before it got off the ground, so uh, and then it disappeared. So it was only around for about four or five years, uh, and it's really hard to find a, a uh, old stereo that has an SQ matrix decoder in it. So if you can find that, you can decode it and listen to it. Good, Bill. I would think it would be massive fun if it works. I was super fortunate enough to be at the Dark Side of the Moon concert when they were touring live behind the album. And I've told the story before that they actually had to delay the concert months in order to make sure there was enough power in the Arizona State University Activity Center, which is already a huge facility, but they didn't have enough to run the show. And in part of it, I'll give you a small example. At one of the transitions between two of the cuts, they're moving into Great Gig in the Sky, and they release a little plane, which is not really that little, but this is a huge activity center, and it comes from the back and eventually is going to crash at the bottom of the screen, and its sound, sure enough, started behind us and came over, so you heard this, you know, what is that, what is that? I was up close to the front of the stage, maybe in 15 rows back, and it became a presence for me before the actual model showed up, landed in front of the screen, and the screen, this 50-foot Mylar circular screen, blew up. If they can record, if they've managed to capture those high-resolution sources from some of that stuff, and they, they did it, put a lot of money into this show, it'd be really cool. I hope they do it well, and I hope it comes out great. Yeah, and quick reminder that uh, if you uh, are interested in asking questions, this is a good time to ask questions for the first hour. It's also a great time to ask questions for the second hour. So check out Odd House, and uh, we'll have uh, uh, we'll, we'll be talking about surround sound and Atmos uh, in the second hour. So if you've got questions specifically about that, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. And if you've got questions for the first hour, go ahead and throw those in and vote on the questions. Let us know. You're deciding what order as the viewers that we're going to end, to ask these questions. So make sure to jump in there and vote on the questions. Vote early, vote often. All right, next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Fiera, Florida, with OBS AV1 live encoding release. How far do you think we are from an ND to end REC 2020 4K60 signal chain? Go ahead, John. Great question. You know, AV1 now is five years old as of yesterday. And it's super computational um, needs. The requirements are huge. In fact, to, to run it right, you need a you need an NVIDIA four thousand or a dedicated ASIC to to encode live for AV one. Oh, I don't know. I haven't tried it on M one yet. I'll try it on M one on on OBS and see see how it works. But then you, but then you you're going to need a ton of bandwidth to do what you're saying here. Four K sixty frames, Rec twenty twenty. I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Probably thirty to fifty. Meg up. No, you can get you can get more efficient. It depends on the kind of content, of course. If it's sports content, it's going to be uh, more aggressive. But you know, you can probably in in this uh, signal chain. I mean, to your point, it's probably twenty to thirty megs is going to be the right the right number for you to do it um, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, so it probably isn't. You could do fifty, and fifty would get you more. But AV one's a lot more efficient than two sixty five. So it's going to it's more computationally intensive. Um, but you know, but you can save a little bit there on H two sixty five at um, you know with the the Rec twenty twenty by the way is doesn't add that much he headroom. It's it's it you know from the from a ten bit that we're already doing. That's really the the four K. So if you think about the math, we consider ten eighty p minimum is six six megs a second. Ten eighty p thirty is six megs a second is what we want to see minimum. Uh, optimum is probably eight megs a second. You know to for most things that are uh, eight bit. 
Um, so if you multiply that by four, you end up at 24. So that gets you to 24 megs a second with an upper limit of 32 um, you know, on those. And you can get more quality if you go up a little bit higher than that. But I think that, that prob- 20 to 30 megs a second is probably the right, the right target for that kind of thing. Where things get complicated is when you start talking about 8K60, which some people are we're going to be talking about at NAB. Um, and 8K per second multiplies that by four again. <laughs> so you're talking 200, 100 and, you know, 130 megs a second for 8K. And then if you decide to go to 120, which some people are going to be talking about at NAB as well, um, you're now, you know, you're, you're now getting into the 250 megs a second up and down um, to make all of that work. So it's, you know, bandwidth is still something that is going to be, uh, most of the tests that we've done in 8K120 have been higher than that, between three and three and 500 megs a second. So it's, it's a, you know, it, it, it really depends on what you're, what you're doing there. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I, I was going to ex- say the, that exactly. Uh, my big, the bigger thing is uh, I went down this rabbit hole yesterday. It was uh, about AV1 and of course, AV2 started uh, around 2018. So, uh, at, and even with AV2, I don't think we're even going to get close to, I think it's going to be a couple revisions before this happens. You got to remember that this is just OBS uh, trying to stay ahead of the game and uh, getting things in. And uh, I have a feeling that it's going to take a step back before it starts to take any type of step forward. And until we start seeing uh, paid services, paid hardware that starts to adopt this, uh, then we'll we'll start to see some really great advances. But right now, I think you just want to do a try AV1. That that's that's where this OBS will come in. Next question. Marty Adius of uh, Maryland says, now that Waves has gone all subscription model after investing in plug-in ownership, is it worth it or are there good alternatives? Go ahead, Jeff. Well, this is, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of conversation uh, uh, over the past couple of days. Um, and, and, you know, it depends who you are, what you do. If you do music, my opinion is it's probably great for you because uh, musicians and, and engineers, uh, studio engineers are always looking for a different sound, a different way of doing things so that their music doesn't all sound the same. Uh, in all the voiceover groups, um, and the folks that are using um, some waves, things are, are going crazy because they have the, you know, two or maybe even three plugins that they bought, and and that's it. And and voiceover folks should be doing the opposite. They should get their settings dialed in, and lock it in, and not change it, not constantly change plugins and and do all that stuff once they have a good sound set for. For voiceover folks, it makes no sense to join a subscription. Uh, there are other subscription plans. I mean, Universal Audio, um, you know, however that is, two years ago or so, you know, did their Spark Audio subscription. Uh, there's Plugin Alliance. There's uh, Native Instruments has a subscription. So there's more and more of those companies, just like everything else, is is trying to go to subscription. Go ahead, Marty. Can't hear you, Marty. Why not? Okay, so I I own a lot of plugins, and some of them are Waves, and and Waves is the only one that um, uh, that I've been using that subscription model. the 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 way that they were marketing them with the upgrade plan every year got to be really expensive. Um, all the other plugins that I have, I own. 
um, and I'll, I'll be able to use them and upgrade them perpetually. And for somebody like me who um, uses them, uh, not every day, but when I do a project, you know, it's it's going to be important. And I want to be able to, in the future, if necessary, uh, or if desired, go back and uh review that that mix with those plugins and if i happen to let that subscription lapse um then i'll no longer be able to to hear that mix as i originally did it whereas if i own the plugin perpetually then i'll always be able to do that uh, whether i upgrade it um when a new version comes out or not is completely optional so i i do understand that you know subscriptions uh, benefit the companies and i'm all for for keeping for supporting them um it's just uh, you know one way or the other i'm not sure you got bill I've been surprised at how much of the move to subscription has been driven by pure profit. And I say that only because back when uh, I was an Adobe subscriber, I stopped because I was concerned about the cost over time. If I look back at the four, at the 10 years I've had Final Cut, I've paid thousands of dollars, probably three, three and a half thousand dollars. I would have paid that more if I had been on the monthly subscription than I paid for getting the software. Now, that doesn't always hold true. But the reason companies are so interested in subscription is that it is a revenue boost for them. That may be perfectly legitimate if you drive your business that way, that you're getting utility for the money. But I haven't seen that big delta that they promised in the development costs. They were, there was a lot of talk about, we're doing subscriptions so we can keep revving the software quicker and better. And I don't see that much rev in the subscription software versus what's happening with the non-subscription software. Um, and, and the thing that Marty brought up about um, rights and ownership and the fact that you could get cut off from access to your software if you stop paying the rental cost. That still does concern me, which is why I try to avoid subscription software whenever I can. I, I'm not perfect in that, and I can't do it sometimes. And I do feel I get value for some of the subscriptions. But I do always look for a closed-end subscription where if I leave it, I am left with the capabilities that I need. And that's exactly to Marty's point, that they can't cut me off from capabilities I need to earn my living if the subscription lapses. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I I, I think that I've talked to a bunch of people about this <laughs> um, across both within and outside of our group. And most people are like, well, people are going to just subscribe. Like they're going to, you know, they're going to go for a little while without subscribing, but the, the waves is not, not really something that's easily replaceable inside of most, uh, many studios. And so it's probably not going to be something that it's probably, and the problem that you get into is they have the problem that they've saturated their market um, they have, you know, they don't have a lot of new things to make and they're, you know, so they've been so prolific, they've created their own problem, which is that they just don't have the revenue to maintain what they're doing. And I think that that's where companies who have done that don't have a lot of places to grow, um, both in software as well. You know, like they can put updates, but a lot of people are just really happy with what they have. And they're not taking that away. People can, people who have bought it can keep it. They just can't have the updates, I believe. I, I don't think that, I think that they're not taking anything away from anybody or, or, or sunlighting sun it or sunsetting and, anything. 
Right. Anything that you've bought and own, you you will continue to own. You just simply won't right. get any updates to it. So for as long right. as that's useful, that's fine. You know, what's funny is not only have they saturated their market, but there's a lot of plug-in companies, uh, you know, as software and AI and everything mm-hmm. gets more sophisticated, there's a lot more options. The other funny thing, I mean, when you have a company that has so many plugins like Waves, it's like a cable subscription. You know, this helps them pay for those little, you know, off-brand plugins that they have that, that a lot of folks don't use or buy. Well, and I think that the, the advantage for a lot of folks will be, and it really depends on whether you own it or not. Like, as someone who doesn't own many waves. I, I bought some plugins only on their sales. So the thing is, I only buy them when they're like $35 or $30. And I've got about $200. I haven't bought that many, but I have maybe $200 worth of software from them. For me, it's a great deal because <laughs> I can throw it in. I can pay by the month and decide you know, what I want to do. And one of the advantages is, is that it when you give people a lot of plugins that they weren't going to use at a subscription rate that I don't actually think is that high. 25 bucks a month is not a particularly high number. What really turned me off with Adobe was the $50 a month for all of the plugins when I, all I want is Illustrator or After Effects or something like that. They they gave us Photoshop as an a la carte and then everything else was kind of all bundled in and which drove me a little crazy. And so, um, so I think that, but at, at this rate, I think that it's not... Not necessarily bad. The big the, the big thing is, is from a sustainability perspective for companies, I worry a lot about sustainability, you know, of companies being able to maintain their revenue. It's not so much as much, we can talk about it being profit, but it's also being able to stay in business. And and I think that, um, I think that they're, you know, we want, if you're a Waves user, you really want Waves to be financially healthy. You know, um, and I, you know, I, I'm always surprised that they're in business. <laughs> like, it's just a really hard business for them to be in. And those sales, I think, actually created a, a real problem because people like me just don't even think about buying them at retail. Like, you never, because they do enough sales um, that that I just felt like, well, you have to wait. That's when you buy the the, the plugins. And so the really that was a really bad business model for them. And I think that they're, they've kind of stretched it as long as they can go. Uh, but I think that the other option, I think, is not so much they're going to make more profits or buy nice cars. I think they're just going to stay in business. Like, I don't think, I think that they're, um, with the, the amount of competition and the saturation they have, I think that they, they, they probably thought pretty hard about this and it's probably pretty necessary. Uh, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, the other aspect that occurs to me, and again, on the company side, you know, there's there's so many really, really good companies making really, really good plugins out there. And uh, but but the subscription model waves and plugin alliances doing it as well, is that <clears throat> you get access to all of their plugins rather than, you know, being selective and buying what you want. And so you know, you you get a, a subscription for one company. Do you really need a subscription from a different well, company to get those as well? I mean, and I think that that's the problem that they have is if other people do, like I I got I Isotope has a subscription model. You can buy it outright, or you can subscribe, and I subscribe to it because I was like I I don't know if I'm going to need this for more than six months. And so I just did the math. I was like, it's going to be cheaper for me to just run it for a little while while I'm testing those things out. I, I need it more than a demo. But I don't need, I don't want to spend the $1,000 or $1,200 that I was going to spend. And that was holding me back. You know, at 20 bucks a month, I was like, meh, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> you know, like, so, so I think that that's the, I think that there is a lot of pickup and you can get cut out of these markets 
if if they're not careful, they'll get cut out if they don't lower that and make sure that they're really providing all those things and we don't pick something else. So I, I don't, I think it's actually, I think there's a lot of people grousing about it, but I think it's going to settle in. They're going to make more money. They're going to be more successful. They're going to be able to do, you know, I think it, I think it's actually going to be good for for their group. I don't agree with that necessarily for everything, but um, but I, I think I've also thought about this, like, well, when I move into apartment, you know, somewhere where I'm, where I, where I have a studio, I'm paying rent every day, you know, every, every, every month or whatever. I'm paying rent for the space that I'm in. I'm paying rent for these things. And so while I, I am sensitive to it and I definitely think about those things as I think about what am I adding to my overhead, we do pay rent on a lot of these things. And it does mean that they can maintain those things that are there. Um, and I do think actually that Adobe has to their, in, to their defense, they have have done better. <laughs> like they've actually have more updates than they did when they were going from uh, update to update. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul says uh, he's got a link there. And it's a London-based company that says they're offering something truly groundbreaking in their translucent ear device. Have you heard of it? And if so, do you have comments? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I think that's their main feature is it's translucent. Uh, which technically it isn't. Uh, it's it's probably a good consumer headset. It's uh, got 11.6 uh, 11.6 millimeter driver. It's got noise cancellation up to 40 decibels. They don't say what the frequency range is on the headphones. It's got three microphones for uh, not only for the noise canceling but also so they can hear you. So yeah, if you're if you're looking for a set of headphones for your Android device. Uh, that yeah, and you don't want to get AirPods Pro for your iOS, then you could give these a try. $150 is the starting uh, price on it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I looked at it. It's uh, uh, the marketing translucent is kind of a bad marketing choice because translucent is like you know it passes light, but it uh, it doesn't pass images through. So uh, you know like milk glass. So I don't think I'd want something translucent with my audio. If you want to hear audio. You'd want something transparent, and I think when they're talking about the translucent mode, it means it has a. This is what they look like. Um, they have little transparent cases. Hey, that's cool. And I don't know if that's a display on the side that looks like a little LED display, but it, it may just be paint. Uh, so it's hard to tell. Uh, and it does, as Jeffrey said, it has multiple little mic capsules. One for uh, noise cancellation, and probably the other one for translucent mode. So it lets you hear your surroundings around you. If you want to have a conversation with somebody, you change modes. It just, uh, you know, the other capsule is flipped in polarity uh, or phase with the input, so that you can uh, hear or cancel depending upon which microphone is selected. And then a third microphone is used for. Uh, when you want to talk on the phone, so just to pick up your voice, your voice specifically, and transmit it out. So, and there are other many other head earbuds on the market that do this same thing. So I don't know how groundbreaking it is, including the AirPods Pro. I think. Next question, Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida. How are Alex, Bill, and everyone with thirty monitors in front of them avoiding acoustic reflections into their mic? Go ahead, Bill. A uh, tighter pattern mic is one of the ways. I have used my Neumann TLM-103, which is a more sensitive and um, less rejecting sides kind of mic. Um, I haven't you tried to use it with the Cedar system. It'd be interesting. But I just, all I ever do is hang a mic in a position, record it, 
bring it into my audio suite, look at it and see, you know, what's going on? What does the actual thing look like? Because literally, I've discovered over the course of the years that moving your mic from the right side to the left side can change how it receives all these bouncing signals from any space. So I'm never, you know, it's just this way. It is record it, look at the picture, and then see if there are problems and then address the problems. That's always been my process. You go, Marty. Think uh, billiard balls. It, it's all about rays and about reflections and reflection angles. <laughs> I would have said ball bearings. It's all about ball bearings. Ball bearings? <laughs> yeah. Fletch reference for you. Good, Jeffrey. Yeah. I love the Fletch reference. Uh, for me, uh, I have a little gap in between the uh, monitors because that's where my camera is sitting. Behind that is uh, is a curtain. So what I'm basically talking to is, into is a curtain. So that's helping from the reflection. Of course, the dynamic microphone helps. If you want to tip the m monitors down a little bit, that'll help on the reflection as well. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you know I I am in a um, I am definitely uh, trying to it up and for some reason i can't um the uh i'm the i have blankets all the way around me <laughs> like you know and so i have a lot of screens but the screens are all pointed in different directions so they're pushing the they're bouncing those things around it's exactly what marty was talking about billiard balls but i've got a mess in front of me of all kinds of things that are that i'm picking up and showing on the camera and doing other things and but literally uh, uh, you know there's a box that i built that's all moving blankets um, that that are that are basically are there to, to tighten it up. I've actually I went to a fabric store. I've never been to a fabric store before. Uh, on um, and and I oh my gosh in Berkeley it, you just kept on going through one is rolls and rolls and rolls of fabric, and I realized I was like I could build something very pretty. You know, in it, you know, with this fabric that doesn't look like right now, it looks like I just moved in, and it you know, there's a it's a mess, and I've never really tuned it up. But going to the fabric store has me thinking all about. Um, and, and the funny thing is, I, I the, you're probably wondering why did Alex go to a fabric store? It's because I'd never been to it. <laughs> like I drove past it all the time, and I was like, I've never been there. My daughter and I go out on Saturday mornings, and uh, we drove. We decided we're gonna go to those stores that are on the frontage road in Berkeley that we haven't been to. <laughs> so we just wandered in. So it was just random. And I, now I'm like rethinking about how to rebuild my entire studio based on uh, fabric. Cause I was like, it's not that expensive when you just buy it in, you know, from the roll. Go ahead, Bill. I love fabric stores. We used to have one in Phoenix called SAS and the bolts and bolts. So I think you need a theme here. I think Bedouin tent, right? Instead of just, I think you do something that looks like it's in the Arabian desert. Once I was in there, there were so many options, like like so many, you know, of, of you know, all kinds of bandana. I was thinking a whole, a whole just bandanas all the way, one giant bandana. Oh yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Well, if you have the opportunity, if you have someone in the area that makes custom drapes, especially one of the yeah. companies that makes it for like hotels and places like that, I had the the uh, benefit of going into one who who made some uh, just special cut blackout curtains, and I went to their factory. Same thing, but now think these are all you know blackout and yeah. acoustic fabrics and all that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. Really neat. I mean, sky's the limit. Yeah, it's really it was really cool. Uh, next question. Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio. I need to live stream multiple languages, three particularly, into one player, letting the viewer select what they listen to. Any suggestions on a content distribution network and or player to accomplish this? 
Yeah, so so what you need is a HLS player. I mean, HLS is going to be the easiest way for you to do this, and you need a player in those HLS JS if you want to develop something. Uh, there's other companies like Mux that that will have um, that that do kind of turnkey of those. Of course, if you're only going to, I mean, and this is if you're, I'm assuming that what you want is a cross-platform solution. Um, the Apple Foundation player will do this really easily. <laughs> so you just turn it on and start sending it. If you, if you include the languages in the manifest and you include the the audio tracks, the Apple Foundation player will play to all the Apple devices without any any extra code. Um, but if you want to go to Android or Windows, you're going to need something like the HLS JS player. You're going to need to look at Mux. You're going to have and sometimes what we do is we put it in there where we switch the player depending on what you're what you're actually getting at. And most entertainment companies have to change those manifests based on the device. Uh, I, I believe that a large one in LA, something we've all watched, uh, has built something like 400 and some manifests that are built dynamically based on the device. So it's a real, it's a little bit of a mess to do it really well. And what, as you start to get into this, as you start to get into multiple, multiple languages and, and other things like that, it really is a challenge. And you just need to know that there's not a really great way to do this. The as far as developing it, what you're going to do is typically you're going to have your English on your fir, you know first and second channel, and then you're going to add the other languages. And usually we keep those in mono just to save languages. We pack all those onto an SDI signal, so you can have up to you know if you take an SDI signal has 16 channels, so if you have the first two be English, you've got another uh, 14 that are available to you. So you could do 15 channels, 16 if you keep them all mono. Uh, and only eight if you keep them all stereo. <laughs> and so so you put those into those languages, you send them all, what we typically do, because if you start encoding all of those on their own, what you want to do is have something that's going to let you encode, you, you have all of those, um, uh, all the channels on your SDI signal. You're going to go into your encoder. If you have, it's very hard to do this with a software encoder. So this is where you start looking at um, streaming appliances. And, you know, we use elementals, uh, but people, you can use a lot of other things. And what you can do is you can encode, you can say, I'm going to grab onto this video, but I'm going to encode a lot of different audio signals out of it. The way to handle that uh, with less bandwidth is to use something like a, again, something in the, like a link, like an elemental link, get it into the cloud. It's going to take a lot less bandwidth. It's going to be a little easier to manage. And then you're going to take it there and split out those tracks. Um, it's easier to build pages that the much the easier way to do this if you're not ready to do the kind of the heavy lifting of setting this up again the Apple Foundation player handles it directly. Uh, you can build something with a with a Mux or I don't know if Mux does multiple languages, but you also have the again the HLS JS player. And what you want to do is is um, you're going to be sending up those extra audio channels as separate files. But if, if the easiest way to do this is have multiple pages. So you're basically, you have multiple embeds. You have three embeds for the different languages on your web page. And there's a little button. You push the little button that has the little flag on it. And it, changes, it changes the web page. Now you're just doing three videos that are out. Um, and again, you can, you can send it up to AWS, split it out, and just grab the right channels for each one of those languages and then put them back into that page. So there's a button to, to select. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to, right now there's not a lot of great solutions uh, for for what you're talking about um, with you know f that are cross platform again Apple has it all sorted out but everybody else is a little behind. Uh, next question, John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada, and here on the panel, Sony just announced the ZV-E1 with full frame and the same sensor as the FX3 for two thousand dollars US for the body. Thoughts? Go ahead, John. Sorry, it's two thousand and two hundred dollars, but this has got the same sensor as the FX3 and the and the A7. S3 and uh, it also streams in 4K live out. It looks pretty amazing. It's a little pricey, but for what you're getting, it looks like a good deal. 
See, I just bought a. This, this is how this happens. I just bought the. <laughs> I know you just bought the FX three, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna check out my. I bought it from B and H. I'm gonna check out my uh, my return policy. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, this looks like it's designed for for video vloggers uh, because it, it it pays a lot of attention to uh, AI use of image stabilization. It has five axes: image stabilization, optical image stabilization plus a dynamic image stabilization on top of that. It has face detection and multiple face detection, automatic bokeh, you know, uh, defocusing of the background. But if you have, if it detects two faces in the frame, it will reduce the bokeh so that the second face isn't out of focus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really designed for the video blogger, but it looks like, uh, you know, if you're using it in a stationary setup like we do, you know, maybe you'll just, you know, benefit of the fast focus. Uh, it also has different modes that you can put it in for product demonstrations where it will recognize certain things and, and that are not faces and keep them in focus and defocus everything else. So It's got a lot of tricky AI stuff in it that uh, may not be useful to everybody, but it's certainly for that price uh, gives you a lot of features if you're going to be carrying it around on the end of a selfie stick. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. So the biggest problem with this camera right now is the heat. It's actually supposed to be doing 4K, uh, 4K 120 frames a second and uh, 1080p 2, 240 frames a second. Uh, but it uh, apparently some of the reports have been finding that if you're just doing 4K at 30 frames or uh, possibly even the 60 frames once the firmware comes out, that it's overheating. It also doesn't have a mechanical shutter to it. Uh, so if you're looking for those types of features, you might want to wait. The, the biggest thing is it's also got the HDMI. If you're doing any type of streaming, it's got the micro HDMI. And a lot of reports have been saying that the micro HDMI is very fragile and it falls out really easily. So we'll, I'm going to give it a couple more months before, and I'll probably definitely take a look at it at NAB. But it's not, uh, it's, I don't think it's there yet. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, I, I'm pretty happy with the the FX30 that I got. I'm, I think that if I I probably would probably keep it. I I knew that Sony was thinking about some more full frame stuff when I bought it, and decided that Super 35. I want at least one of them that's Super 35 because of the the greater depth of field actually, and and being able to do that. So, um, but I'm going to keep tracking this to see how that how it goes. Next question. Ronnie Settle of La Plata, Maryland says Sennheiser has released the profile USB microphone, including USB-C, silent mute button, and knobs for gain, headphone volume, and side tone slash computer audio mix. Apparently, it's the KE-10 capsule. What do you think about the capsule and the mic overall? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I think it's going to be a decent microphone. I think it's going to be great for any type of podcaster, any type of uh, somebody that wants to put a capsule on their desktop you can put it onto a microphone stand but there's just a lot of a uh, lot of knobs still that uh I, you know can cause problems uh if if you have if you decide to turn any of them yeah, good uh, jeff and again the decision for who's buying this is you know yes there's two knobs there but it's a heck of a lot better than all the knobs i'd have to have on a usb interface and you know it's it's not for the pro user like all of these but um you know they want that content creator blogger youtuber or youtuber wannabe uh, it's really easy especially at that price point 130 bucks I, I was trying to see a picture of what the back of it looks like because i think if nothing else what a lot of folks want is to specifically just not 
have a Yeti uh, so that they don't look like another person using the Yeti. And I think companies are going to pay more attention to what the back, in other words, what the camera will see, if that microphone can look like a quote-unquote real microphone. But on our side, the user side, you know, have one or two knobs and and the rest is all DSP and software mixers. I mean, I think it's good to let those people who might not otherwise get a good microphone just use their built-in microphone. Good, Bill. The KE10 capsule that I've seen before is generally used in things like their podium mic. So I would be a little concerned. I would want to make sure that if you're looking for full spectrum audio, that it has decent low end because sometimes those podium type mics tend to have not great low end response and focus on the mid ranges for voice. But I'd just check it out and see. We'll know in time. Next question. Next question comes from Eric Price in Kansas City, planning to get a new digital audio interface to have both studio and field capability. Is there any benefit to the MixPre 6 over the 3 beyond the additional inputs and double the outputs? I think it's just I.O. for the MixPre 3. You do get analog outputs at the MixPre 10. So there are definitely some jumps uh, of what I think the MixPre 3, the MixPre 6 is more. So, for instance, you need a MixPre 6 if you're going to do something like an Ambio mic. Uh, that, you know, so any any type of those types of mics are going to need just a little bit more than what, than what the MixPre 3 has. So you may want to look at that. Uh, MixPre 10 does add the analog outputs, which are useful for um, for a lot of folks. Um, they also, one thing that is, is notable for surround is for those Ambios, the processing is actually done in the mixed pre's and not in the eight series <laughs> so, so something that, that i just discovered uh so so anyway uh just something to it's a it's an interesting feature that's in the mixed pre's that are not in the in the eight series um and so it's just something to to note all right, we are we're changing subjects into our second hour we're here we have uh cheryl uh written uh, i'm sorry Sh- Sh- cheryl ottenritter uh that that is here yeah thank you so much and we're so happy to have you cheryl how are you doing I'm doing great. How's everybody today? We're doing great. Where are you coming in from? I'm actually coming in from Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. Fantastic. And can you tell us a little bit about Ott House Audio? Sure. Um, My husband and I started Ott House Audio in 2006, um, basically because we wanted to have a little more control of our lives as our children were young. And I wanted to have a little more control over the projects that I worked on. So we we started and... And, you know, 16 years later, here we are. Um, Yeah, we're still working. That's a feat in itself, you know, with everything, yeah. Yeah, and we're we're happily um, very entrenched in immersive audio. Uh, We we, uh, built the first near-field home home entertainment uh, Dolby Atmos suite um, on the East Coast in 2016. And uh, we primarily did that to help with our museum immersive work that we were doing, our experience work that we were doing. And then it's it's just led to all this other awesome uh, immersive work and Dolby Atmos work that we're doing. Um, now, did we, you start did you start when you when you opened? Did, were you doing any immersive work then? No, mm-mm. no, not in 2006. We were not. Well, and what, what did you do before you opened? What was what was your? What, oh, sure. You I'll give you. A, yeah. Um, I'll give you a very short bio. Yeah. Um, uh, I have worked in the D.C. area, starting out my career, and then uh, went to New York and mixed uh, national advertising for almost five years. And when we were starting our family, we real I realized that I I couldn't be a mom and a mixer uh, in national advertising, or but you I want could. to be both. 
<laughs> I could, I could, but yeah, I wanted to be both. I wanted to be present for my family, mm-hmm. so uh, we decided to move home. We're both from DC, and and uh, you know, took jobs down here, and just it just evolved into we just wanted to have a little bit more control. I was always working on long format spots, marketing, uh, some museum work, not a lot that came later. Um, and then when I we left, we were primarily short form, so promos, marketing, corporate corporate stuff, museums, short museum stuff, and long form. Then we started working uh, directly with networks on long format stuff, Smithsonian, Channel, Paramount Plus, et cetera. And then um, we, I did my first immersive uh, museum in 2013. Uh, I think that's when it was, College Football Hall of Fame. And that's when the fun began. So, yeah. And that, that led me to, to explore all the different tools. Uh, so we were doing uh, immersive mixing before Dolby Atmos, and we were right. jerry-rigging Pro what Tools to do it. What were you using? Just, just, you were just... We were jerry-rigging Pro Tools to do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, 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 so you, and, but, and that's where a lot of us start. You know, it, it's, right. it's just figuring out a way to get what needs to get out out of the right speakers, right? It's, it's you know, it, before Atmos. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was challenging. That's actually what led me to App. Atmos. I, I heard it in, um, I actually heard it in 2013 when I went out to LA. They have a big sound and story uh, conference, every one day conference out on the Sony lot. And I went out and I heard Dolby Atmos for the first time. And I was like, this is it. And uh, I had a couple friends who are already dabbling in it in the studios. And I went out to like Tadeo and or maybe it was Deluxe, I can't remember. Anyway, so I went out there and hung out in the studios. And I was like, this is great. This is awesome. But how is the consumer going to, you know, how is the consumer going to, uh, con- you know, consume this? How is this going to last, right? right? So I I just, um, so then they they went and they showed me a secret prototypes of the stuff that they were right. working on for the consumers. And I was like, okay, so I want to. I wanted to. I knew I wanted to go down that path. I just didn't know when. And then in 2016, I had a job um, down at the American uh, Revolutionary Museum down mm-hmm. in Williamsburg, where they were recreating the siege of Yorktown. And so I knew, <laughs> I knew that director would use everything and you know, the overheads. It was like a 22.4.6 mix or something like that. Wow. And I desperately wanted a panner. I, I desperately wanted a panner that would allow me to do that. And so I called um, a couple people, and that's how I ended up with the first uh, RMU, actually, for home theater. That's great. And yeah. and how how has how have you seen it change since you got into it? Um, you know, well, of course, you were kind of hacking it through, and then you had Atmos. But from 2016 until now, what have what have been the changes in the development? Oh, it's 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 been amazing. Um, uh, from the consumer side, uh, they're constantly uh, making better and better products mm-hmm. for which for for the public to consume. Um, I see it going from the typical cinema theatrical applications to, you know, for what I use it for museums, uh, 4D uh, uh, experiences. You know, they're making buildings now out of of immersive sound, uh, not necessarily Dolby Atmos, but immersive sound. And um, I see it. You know, the music has just taken off. Like I never would have guessed that in in 2016. I never would have guessed that. You know that. Uh, that immersive music or spatial music, the Apple Music title, now Spotify, uh, Amazon, 
I, I didn't see that coming, and that's right. that's actually lifted everything up. It's made every everybody a little bit more aware. It does it. seem like everyone's trying to get everybody with everybody with in, uh, discrete tracks in LA seems to be trying to remix their albums, uh, you know, for yeah. for that. Now you now is a lot of your work muse, museums still I, still or have you moved kind of past that? Oh no, we're. I try to be as diversified as I can because yeah, I good. feel like both creatively it allows me and my team to be more fresh and approach different mm-hmm. projects. How big? Is, how big uh, is your team? Uh, we have about five now. That's great. Um, so it's. It, I I tend to be around. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, so uh, so we have about five now, and I feel that we're. I would say our work is about over a little bit over 50% immersive work at the moment. Um, what was a real surprise this year was the emergence of uh, immersive podcasting. Right. Um, so, but on the technical side, you asked me about what I saw develop. I mean, it, it was really hard at the beginning. You know, we didn't have the the pa- internal panner. We didn't have all the right. integrations with Pro Tools. It was a it was an interesting development of okay, how do I do this? And then reminding yourself every six months to check is this still the best way? You know. So do, um, do, you, do you sometimes feel like you know like when you see now that the panners and everything else are just built into logic? It's like mm-hmm. you don't you don't have no idea how hard this used to be. <laughs> I always feel like that when you look at that. It was interesting. I just taught a class last night about this and, you know, they were asking me all these questions and I was like, wow, these questions never could even have been asked, you know, in 2016 because it was impossible. So I feel, I feel like, you know, with the Dolby Atmos came out with a a Dolby plug that controls inside the track and controls the, um, in Pro Tools anyway, because that's what I I work on, um, controls the, uh, uh, Renderer. So it helps you because it used to be you had to have everything perfect in Pro Tools and then you had everything perfect in Renderer and then go, okay, let's go. Now they're actually integrated. Of course, in Nuendo, it's already integrated. In DaVinci Resolve and Fairlight, it's already integrated. In the Logic, it's already integrated. So I say, you know, let Pro Tools kind of grow up and get through. Um, well, it's know. interesting because almost all, I mean, not all, but of why the vast majority of people that I know that are doing immersive are doing it in Pro Tools. So it's interesting mm-hmm. that all these other apps have, have <laughs> you know, gotten a little ahead uh, while the most of the major mixes seem to be still done in Pro Tools. Has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. I mean, Pro Tools is the industry standard. And until... Right. Um, until the bigger, until the big markets, like I'll just say it, the LA stages decide that they've had enough. It's going to be the industry standard. Um, I've I've dabbled in the. I used to run a Fairlight uh, mm-hmm. back in the day, so I have dabbled in the DaVinci Resolve Fairlight, and it's a it's an awesome interface. It also allows Resolve. You can make uh, the masters in very well. I think they're called IMFs. And, and what is your yeah. o- what what's your overall opinion of the Resolve the Fairlight tools in Resolve? Have they been able to kind of do you, Do you feel like it's something someone could could use? I think a lot of people have a hard time because everything's being packed into one big app. And so, but do you feel like when you get into that audio pain that you have that you, you have the tools that you would need? Oh yeah, it's just I don't have the time to learn them. Right. So right. <laughs> I, I I stay in the platform that I uh, that I know you. that my whole team is built around. And also, if we have to hire a freelancer, you know, I, I that's why I stay on Pro Tools really. Um, but yeah. how do you approach? So when you when you come into a project and you're starting mm-hmm. to think about it, how do you start? How do you approach that project as when you're thinking about it in an immersive space? 
do wow. you get I guess one I guess the question is is that do you how often do you get assets just given to you versus talking to a talking to the producer talking to the director about the kind of assets that you're going to want potentially so that you can really create the immersive sound or is that something you have to do kind of in post Ideally, we talk about it in production, right. um, but ideally, uh, ideally um, I would say I would say I get assets all the time without a, any kind of communication, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, usually I get a script or some kind of direction. But some, uh, but what's really cool is uh, we've been working a lot with National Geographic's uh, department, and um, they are. I can't really get into all the details, but what's really cool is I'm getting all these wonderful assets from the field, and um, I, I I get at first they would just send the assets that they thought would work with the script, right? So like whatever that is, and the right. fir- very first one, believe it or not, was just a single MP3 recording. So I was like, oh, okay, and I'm not allowed to use any sound effects that they didn't record in the field, so it was a, it was very challenging, right. and um, so then. Uh, then, you know, luckily this team is very invested into what they're doing immersively. And uh, they started sending out um, Amazonic microphones into the field. Which and microphones? They, do you know which mic they were using? They're using the Zoom, the, I think really? it's an H3. Yeah. yeah. And the reason is, is that um, it's not their total intent is to record audio. These are scientists in the field. Explore easy, and also if you think about it, they're in very rough conditions. Mm-hmm. Want to send expensive microphones out into the mm-hmm. to only get them locked. And what's the what's the process of taking the ambisonic recording and getting it into your system to make it work? Oh, um, it's very easy. You just mm-hmm. put in the ambisonic, and then I use a Rode decoder to set for the proper settings, and then it expands out into the Atmos. Interesting. That's great. And and are there things that you wish people would get for you when they're on? <laughs> is there anything that's like, I, if they just gave me this one other thing, or if they just provided that for me, that it would it, things would be a lot, a lot nicer? Is there anything? Do you have any wish list that you don't you don't see very often? Well, I mean, it just goes back to give me a clean recording. Right. Okay? Don't be talking. Don't don't set up your mic there and walk there and talk for two hours and give me. That yeah. I mean, that I think is is no matter what you're doing, uh, that should be the most important thing. Whether it's mono, ambisonic, or whatever, clean as good as you can get it. Um, log log it so we don't have to hunt and peck through three hours yeah. of recordings to find what we need. Um, but I think if I were to have a have a wish list, it would be it would be that um, uh, you know because there and then if it's going to be a live like a live recording or a live concert or whatever don't don't forget the crowd in the situation mm-hmm. plant mics around the crowd whether you hang them overhead or you you know have plant mics or uh, amazonic mics in the crowd that we can manipulate to help make that feeling better but there's a lot that you can do with just regular mono recordings do you find that you uh approach this differently because you really came from a visual medium not music and so what one of the things we the big thing that that 
at least the people I talk to, there's the, the one of the big discussions is the phantom center or the center channel. <laughs> like, you know, like, or, you know, are we using the left and right to create that center or are we using the center channel? And and most people that come from a visual background put it down the center channel and the, the music mixers want to create the phantom channel. Is that, uh, have you seen that back and forth uh, in what you're doing? Um, yeah, of course. What's your opinion? What's your opinion, I guess, is what? I don't. I don't have opinion. I have. Yeah. I feel like whatever is working for what you're working on is what you should do. Got it. So, if, so, if, so what do you do? Um, just that. Like, for instance, I think one of the things I had to overcome the most going from a traditional surround uh, situation to mm-hmm. Dolby to an Atmos situation is realize that. I have to open my mind and forget some of the rules. Right. So, and it, it took, I would say it took several years to really get to where I feel like I'm exploiting creatively right. and technically the medium. So I, I suggest everybody dabbles in it and gets used to it. But anyway, so for me, um, well, like for instance, if you if, if it's picture, right. you know, we're just naturally gravitated to centering the mm-hmm. place um, in the middle. I mean, what we're used to, anything else seems weird. Um, I have a colleague who we go back and forth because I constantly play play with putting voices in different places when I can. Not not drastically, not gimmickly, but it might be a little higher. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be the size of the voice just a little bit bigger or if it's an intimate conversation, a little left, right and pulled in a little bit or... um, Something like that, right? So, So we go back and forth. So any difference from dead center where you're used to it, it's mm-hmm. off for some people. Um, with with music, obviously, you're not locked to picture, or with podcasts, obviously, you're not locked to picture, and it took mm-hmm. a little bit to get, um, to play with that a little bit. Like, so, for instance, one of the last um, uh, podcasts that we did, or original podcast out, out in, for Wondery out in L.A., we, um, they, they like to do narrator like pinned to the forehead, and then um, uh, their characters, all the same voice, they they position, you know, the main point of view character always goes mm-hmm. middle but down lower, and then they have characters wherever in the field around. And that's how they, they've addressed it and how they right. use it, and it works pretty well. Um, for um, other people, like I actually sometimes have, if, if they're walking across the field, say, for instance, or walking up a mountain or riding horses through river, I actually try to take the voices with the action a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, but ch- always checking it in binaural and, and in other applications to make sure it's not gimmicky and taking you out of the story. Do you find that that's something that a lot of people have trouble with in the, when they start surround is that they... W- you kind of want to put that you want to take full advantage of all those speakers and throw things everywhere. Well, I mean, I think some of us can remember when five one really started and how gimmicky everybody was and, Oh, we're going to put that in the back speakers. We're going to do this. We're going to twirl everything around. And I think, um, everybody remembers those, those, um, missteps a little bit. So people are, are a little bit more, um, uh, I don't know. They're, they're, I won't say safer because that's not the right word, but they're very right. aware of not being gimmicky. Good, Marty. You had a question. Yeah. Um, you talked about a couple of different surround sound formats. Uh, there's Atmos, there's binaural. There's so, so tell us about some of the different formats and, and do you need to be aware of um, 
what the consumer is going to be listening to when you're mixing? And what are the differences between them? Okay, so that's basically two separate questions, but that's we can mold that together. The um, the first question is, yeah, you do need to be aware of all the different um, immersive formats. Like, for instance, um, I'm going to share my screen here, just giving you a heads up. Uh, let's see. Let me go to here for a minute, and then let me make sure... Okay, we've believe that she's trying to do a screen share, but hope we didn't lose her. I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, it's it's the as we wait for her to, to come back, we may have, may have lost her in that process. Um, the uh, uh, one of the things that that is interesting that we talk a lot about is that is that the there is this thing where you kind of there's a progression that you go through. Like you don't do do you don't know what to do with all those extra channels. Then you do way too much with those extra channels, and then somewhere you find your way to settle into a into a space that that makes the most sense. And I think that you know I think it sounds like you know that's that's been the, the case there. Um, I think it's really fascinating. The it's interesting to talk to folks, especially that have been have been through it, through the entire progression of we were doing stereo and then we were doing stuff without Atmos or without any tools, and then we, you know, went back to putting those back into those uh, putting those tools back in, um, you know, and, and having the tools now to to do it. And I was really interested in in um, you know I'm very fascinated with the Resolve solution as well as the, I mean I'm. I I, I I bought Pro Tools one. <laughs> you know, so evidently, I think I mentioned this before. Evidently, three months after it was released, they made it sound like it was out the whole for a long time, and I was coming in. But evidently, I I bought it only a couple months after it was released, and so. But I but my days now. I mean, I open it up and I I don't recognize it anymore. So so it's uh, it's been it's been long long gone there. Um, so it's it is a. Uh, um, uh, I, I have to admit that I'm constantly playing i got really excited about logic and have been playing with logic but also i'm thinking of taking some fairlight uh classes uh those of you for those of you listening um there is a lot of uh a lot of great fairlight classes um that uh, black magic actually produces that you can that you can learn a lot around the immersive audio and production uh also did did you did everyone get the emails about the i think there's an app the new atmos renderer um I think there's a there's a webinar about it right after the show. <laughs> so hey, we got Cheryl back. So weird. I I I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, it went black, and I went. Oh. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's get back to the question. So there's lots of different immersive formats, not just Dolby Atmos. So there's lots of different ways. There's Sony 360, there's DTS, there's IMAX, one of the OGs, right? So, I mean, actually, technically, I guess uh, IMAX is technically a channel-based, not an object-based um, yeah. mixing yeah, it's 5. platform. I mean, and it's kind of a 5.0, 5.1. The, the, yeah, it's weird. It's got the, the live is 5.1, and then there's yeah. 5.0 for the for the delivery. Right, and there's no there's no LFE really. They they they, they base manage. It. Yeah, they so everything. Management. So it's so it's there's all those different things. But really, what you're talking about is the consumer. How how do I prepare for somebody listening on their phone and then listening in their home theater? Right. So. 
that's one of the really cool things about Dolby Atmos is that it encodes in, in the metadata of how your room is set up. And so my room is a 7.1.4 room. So in the metadata, it's it sees as a 7.1.4 room. It sees how I mixed, all, all that's in the metadata. And so that when it goes to the phone or if it goes to the decoder for the soundbar or however it is, they go, oh, we see this, what this setup is, and we're going to decode the mix to be the optimal mix for that particular setup. And that's why, as a mixer, it's so awesome. Um, there are some uh, challenges I find in that. Like, how many people How many people here listen to, say, their Hulu or their Netflix or their whatever, and they go, oh, I can't hear the dialogue. That must be a really bad mix, right? Yeah. So... Um, I think what's happening, and it's a big conversation in the in the audio post world right now, especially among mixers, is the fact that not it's everybody is um, listening and mixing at the proper calibrated SPL for the medium that they're playing. So that's something you have to be really careful about. Like, so if if you're going to be theatrical, you have to mix at the theatrical spec. If you're going to be for home theater, you have to mix at the at the home theater SBL. So I feel I feel what's happening and this is kind of proven to be true is that a lot of the mid-level or lower level features that go into theatrical release for like say a month or two weeks they're not properly remixing it for home theater. Well, there's, there's even a challenge though. Like my family will not go. My 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 wife and daughter will not go to a Christopher Nolan film in the theater because they want the captions on. <laughs> like like they literally won't watch a yeah. Christopher Nolan film or Dune. My my wife was like, I don't I didn't understand Dune, but as soon as we turned the captions on, I understood the whole film. Like and it was great. And and so I think that this mixing problem, even at the highest levels and the largest movies, have become really a problem because it's. Um, people are literally not going, like they're, they've gotten used to the captions at home and they're not going to the theater because they can't understand what's happening in the theater. And I think that's a that's a big challenge. I think that's just another challenge for theatrical releases in general. Um, I feel like um, I work more in the nonfiction uh, realm, so documentary, museums. Right. So, so where the spoken word is, ha, ah, that's it. That's like, you know, so right. I... I feel like if you're working in the narrative or the nonfiction realm, you know, you get so used to what they're saying. You get so used to what the dialogue yeah. is that everybody gets lost in the music or lost in the sound effects a little bit on the mix stage. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's also budgets are getting smaller and, well, you know, compressed. And do you, do you mix, if you're mixing theatrical, I mean, do you have a volume large enough? I mean, what, what's your opinion about the, the, there's a lot of, obviously in LA, if you're going to Deluxe or 424 or other ones like that, there's a lot of discussion how big the mix stage is uh, and how, you know, and, and why that's important. Do you find that to be an important piece of of, of mixing for a for a theater, theatrical? I, I do. I think you have to have enough uh, sound to fill the space, to fill the air. Just like Marty was asking, like, do you listen on different mediums? It's the same thing. It's a, it's a tool, right, to see right. how it's going to sound. However, I did do a, 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 a IMAX uh, project a few years ago, right before the pandemic. And uh, at the very, not at the last minute, but we switched to... Um, a theatrical Atmos and near-field Atmos mix as well as the theatrical IMAX. And so I mixed everything 
in Atmos uh, in my room, which is a near-field room, Mm -hmm. and then opened it up on the stage, and it translated perfectly. I think think the opposite is harder. Like, you can't assume that it's going to translate as well. But I was also very careful about listening at the right Mm -hmm. levels, and my room was slightly larger than a traditional near-field room. Yeah. So it does that does help um as far as listening for other things yeah I constantly listen to binaural on my headphones when I'm mixing Dolby Atmos I constantly listen to the stereo I mm. use the renderer to monitor however I'm monitoring you know uh, uh, do you prefer the the Atmos fold down to stereo or do you mix your own stereo mix for <laughs> This is funny. I got into a huge argument last night about this. <laughs> There's a this. lot of arguments about that. So, I mean, if you ask three different engineers about this, they'll have five different opinions. So, I think, <laughs> um, I think that, like, I think that you're, you're at. I prefer the Atmos re-render to the stereo. Absolutely. I always feel like we, well, we we've, we've interviewed a lot of folks about that, and and the engineers are like, well. You know, they they talk about the need to touch it, but they're like, but the Atmos render does a pretty good job, <laughs> you know, as far as folding down. Because it's it's just taking that larger area and putting it down into the two channels. Right. And it it's it's tricky. I think mm-hmm. you have that's why I always listen. I always flip through and listen to it in different ways, either if it's on my Aventones or a TV, crappy TV speaker or my headphones yeah. or my focals or mm-hmm. you know, how however I'm listening. Um but it does in a it actually was that project I was talking about that I was first really made aware of how better my 2.0 mixes were going through Atmos because we were moving facilities right in the middle of that project and it was a little bit of a nightmare. So I'd be sitting in my basement with my headphones on with my big RMU and all this going on and going, oh, I hope this sounds good, right? Right. So, uh you know, it, it was toward the end of the project, luckily, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But that's when I was constantly listening to the stereo of the of the Atmos mix that I did. And I was like, yeah. wow, this is yeah. different. A lot of detail. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. absolutely. Uh, Marty, did you want, Marty, did you want to follow up? Um, well, I, yeah, so that that's important to 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 know how your deliver how your mix is being delivered what people are going to be listening on and and to know what the parameters of the project are and whether you're listening in a in a theater or a, in a conference room for example right um so there are there are I know there are a few questions there but I, I also wanted I'm, I'm not not I'm not one who mixes in surround sound so I'm really fascinated to 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 find out how that works. <laughs> Do you have anything that you can maybe show us? Oh, yeah. Um, hope I don't we lose We tried again. this before. I know. <laughs> this is crazy. Let's, let's try this again. All right. Uh, I'm not going to go to the... I'm getting my I'm, tapping shoes on because I did a little tap dance while you were gone. And so I'm, I'm putting those back on. I'm, I'm ready now. I'm ready for it this time. The last time I didn't, okay. I, I only had sneakers on. You had zero, zero idea I, that I wasn't ready. black. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. All right, so here we go. Um, and also, I, I don't know if all those advanced settings came back when we re-signed up. Oh, nope, let's do it. Uh, stereo, there we go. And let's share screen. I'm actually going to just jump right into... Um, jump right into Pro Tools then. Are you seeing my Pro Tools We screen? see Pro Tools, yep. yep. Great, okay. Out. Great. Okay. Let me make sure in Zoom I'm still optimized. Huh. It's We're I seeing it. It looks just fine. 
Um, yeah. Kobe, not you click the audio doing, button. Just, do you have the original sound turned on uh, on the other screen, probably? I don't have another screen. Oh, right, right, right. When you share on. it. Let's yeah. see. Yeah. So, mm, a back. there's no way to do it. Okay. So, let's just play. Let's see what we have here. Looks at Moskowitz. His eyes are wide um, and unfold. Okay. So, this is a... A podcast that we just finished for Wondery. It's actually, podcast. I think... This is a podcast. I, I know, right? Yeah, it's wow. a podcast. So never would I have thought, like if somebody said eight years ago, yeah, you're going to be mixing immersive podcasts, I'd be like, yeah, yeah no, get out of here. Yeah. Right. But um, it's really a lot of fun. Um, and it's a lot easier to show this than a picture. Um, so let's see here. So when you work in, in Atmos, a lot of people tend to forget a little bit of things about the objects versus the beds. So Marty was asking about surround sound. I don't even view Dolby Atmos as being surround sound. I view it as being immersive audio. It's an object-based mixing versus a channel-based mixing. And everybody's like, well, what's the big deal between the beds and the objects? So I'm going to bring up the renderer here for a minute, make this a little bit smaller so that you can see a little bit of both screens. And as I play, I'm going to have to flip back and forth. Let's see. Jobs that Let's require see. his hands, both his hands. Okay. And what about so, skiing and mountain climbing? How will he be able to keep doing those things? So he hold on, let me turn down this little bit so I can talk over wild. it. Oh, he lets out a wail. Moskowitz gently rubs his shoulder. Hmm. Hey, hey. Modern medicine can work miracles. And okay. I got an update on the inReach, the rescue right. helicopter. So are you hearing that okay? All right. Yeah, so basically, when you go to the renderer, you can obviously flip through and listen to all sorts of different formats. We also have the actual output from the renderer coming back into the S6 here so I can flip back and forth and actually hear the way it sounds um, pre-renderer and post-renderer, which is, I think, really important. And the other thing is that if you notice, we have the beds here and then we have the objects. Now, I have four beds for each like food group, like because I like to use groups um, and, and working so that at the end of the day, I can just spit out whatever splits I want to. And a lot of people get confused with beds with like sub buses. Beds are not sub buses. Beds are basically a 7.1 with the overheads, but allowing you to mix in between in height and size, just like you do objects. So a lot of people ask me, well, why do you even use objects if you can do everything through beds? And I, I like to use objects because it's just a little bit easier to get that precision in where you want the audio to be. And then also um, in the in decoding process, the and encoding process, the objects get priority. So the way I usually set up my mixes is that all my verbs and atmospheres go to beds and then everything hard including voices go to objects and then what's really cool about um the way we use objects is that um a lot of people think okay well you have to have an object per track okay so um i'm gonna let's see it's really hard because i don't i don't see you all let's see um, interesting. Anyway, so um, is so the way we finally have developed over many, 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 many years, it, like lately, and especially with routing folders and Pro Tools, we actually use a folder to go 
that's assigned with an object. And then different tracks can go to that object. That saves us on objects so you don't run out of objects. And it also allows all the panning to follow. And how many objects do you have? Uh, you Well, if you have, let's go back to the renderer. If, if you have uh, the four beds like I do, that's 40 voices. And there's only 128. So I can't do that math, but um, that's what, 100 and... Or take the 40. Yeah, yeah. 88. So minus 120 is 88. So in this particular project, I have 88 objects. You can right. have as many as 118 objects. Right. You have to... Um, even though you don't have to use it, and it's it's actually, I think, eventually it'll go away. Uh, but the way it's currently set up is that you have to have at least have one bed, which is the purple here. Um, uh, and it's SMPTE. It follows SMPTE. Uh, so left, right, uh, center, LFE, the sides, the rears, and then the overheads. So then you have... And then you can have 118 objects if you want. So what's what's really interesting here is is that you can see the blue dots, and those are where all the objects are activated. And I'm not even using all of my objects. And the reason why is that I've conserved my object count by using these routing folders. So instead of using, say, four objects here, I'm only using and one. all those all those um, channels are need to be in the same place. So the object is is controlling the the position of them but they but you're able to group them together. Is that That's correct. They have to be in the same place. They have to follow. Right. And there's another way that you can do that. Let me come down here where we have we're not using like the effects we're not using um we're not using the uh what can I say? Not using the routing folders per se, but each track then has its own object. And then here, if you assign, so this is object five, I believe, sound effect five, yeah. So if you actually route this one as well to um, five instead of six, the way it was, you see how they had the green light. Green leads means active and has mm -hmm. to be on objects. So if you switch that back to five, it grays out. And so then what happens then is that if you go to the panning of this one, let me bring that um, panner down, that window down, so you can see it. There you have it. So if I, if I open up the panner for that object, you can see you have full control, everything's great, yada, yada. And then, um, you know, size, whoop, height, whoop. And, uh, but if you look at this panner, which is sharing the object, or I like to say following that particular object, Mono FX5, it's grayed out. You can't touch it. It's following this panner. Right. So it's a way, another way of conserving. Um, I'm going to stop share for a minute. Um, it's another way of of sharing objects so that you don't run out. Another another way is that you can automate going from beds to objects and objects back to beds. I'm. I don't like to do that. Because right. there's other ways to conserve my objects, and I don't trust the automation. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like you're starting to get too Question. fancy. Um, yeah. yeah, we've got a couple so, more questions from the sure. from, from the panel, and then we've got a lot of questions stacking up from the audience. So we're going to probably move a little quicker. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. Sure. Uh, yeah, you said something earlier that uh, I really uh, uh, don't like is when listening to sound, immersive sound uh, in a theater. 
is to have a, a discrete sound that originates in one of the back channels that you don't see on the screen. It takes you out of the movie immediately. And when you spoke about uh, having to do bids that are not distracting, that have individual sounds. And I remember the first time I saw uh, Apocalypse Now, I saw a, a preview screening in Westwood where they played it the first time with the split surrounds. And the scene where the arrows go from in front of you, front left, to back right was mm-hmm. incredibly effective and yeah. gave a great emotional response. But anytime there was a sound that originated in the back that you didn't know what it was, you hadn't seen it on screen, it would take you right out of the film and you'd be looking around to see what, you know, was somebody unwrapping a camera a candy package behind you or what is that? So it can become very distracting. And how much, how much do you have to, to take that into account uh, in mixing for you know, for film, where you ha- you can't really originate an, an individual sound that's not moving or that doesn't transition from on screen to off screen. Well, if it's not transitioning and it's just there um, as a, a layer or a texture, um, I totally agree with you. It, it, the minute it takes you out of the story, that's when you have to reconsider what you're doing. So whether whether it's a music story, a music arc, a TV podcast. Uh, museum. If it's ta- if it's not adding, it's taking away. So I feel creatively, you have to be careful about that. I am finding that uh, doing the immersive podcast work compared to the immersive doc work, I have a lot more freedom in that those decisions um, because you're not anchored to the screen at all. You're not you're not focused on what's ahead of you a hundred percent. You're just more in the experience. So. I totally agree with you. I actually remember that the first time I heard that in Atmos too. It was it's it's very powerful, um, but I, I I agree. But that's going to be subjective, right? So I'm working on another piece where um, the person comes in and goes, "I want it everywhere. I want to do this. I want to do that." And I'm like, "Well, that's it, it was a music uh, music uh, concert." And I'm like, "Well, that's great, but the minute we add it to." the picture, it's going to feel weird because you're going to hear the guitar player behind you and see the guitar player in front of you. Hashid? I'm so excited that you're here, and thank you. I, I wanted to sure. kind of clarify, um, on immersion, so Atmos would be a better route for uh, object uh, things, right, in compared to other platforms. And like the idea that I have, just to, to be clear about it, is imagine you have six objects coming in front of you. You have no video, but you're using that immersiveness to either teach somebody something with those six objects in front of you. So maybe you might make them bigger or you like light them up. Um, and so I'm just trying to understand how would some of this mixing be done or what would be a better platform to give more of an immersive uh, experience. So the podcasting thing is one idea, or do you make it into like a game or a product where you kind of use the same principles, but uh, taking just the audio aspects and uh, maybe adding automation to it too? I'm sorry, I lost you at the end. <laughs> okay, so, so adding automation um, part would the automation part would be like... Uh, you know, imagine the six dots in front of you light up in specific colors, and that's the audio you're hearing. So you might hear an object light up because you choose dot number one to the top left. And so I want to give a reflection of audio that kind of gives you that experience rather than a physical thing you might see with video. I'm confused. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, we're going we're gonna to move to the next question. Go ahead, okay. Jeff. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you have a museum project handy. Uh, I'd be fascinated to see something like that because I guess when we're talking about uh, a theater, the sound is around us, but of course you expect the audience to always be looking forward versus, I assume, depending on where the audio is coming from in a museum, you truly have visuals that people may be turning around and turning their head to look at. And so I don't know if you have something handy you could show us. It'd be fascinating. And I guess the other question specifically is, how are you doing transitions if you, if an, if you want audio to move? And now we're not just talking about a left-right pan, but, you know, from the upper left corner front to the lower rear corner behind, how do you make that transition? Let's answer that question first, and then I'll switch over. I have a couple videos to show. So I think um, when you're doing that, and say if I'm starting the project in my room, I can try to imagine what how it works, or I could use a software like Mountain um, to help me uh, uh, to, to translate what I'm hearing. And that's actually a video I'll bring up so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, but um, you, you just you just pan it. You, you you know, like you wanted to go to there, there, you pan it and you make it happen. Um, it's, it's very simple in the panner. Um, it's not hard. Um, but really what you need to do then at that point, depending on the space, is you mix in the space. And then you actually see how it's working. And you feel how it's working in the space. And that's the ideal way of doing it. Um, but like, uh, let me share my screen for a minute. Hopefully I won't lose people. Okay. And so, in other words, you you give it the starting point and the ending point, and then you can adjust the pan from that start to the ending point. Is that right? Right. If you want to do it that way, or I can touch screen and pan the sound, or where's my phone? Oh, I, I have to put it away. But like, or there's a software now called Sound Particles, um, and I I just got this and I haven't had a chance to implement it, so I can't speak to how well it works. But it's a very very cool concept where you actually can mix with your phone in the space. So you it, it runs I, I I guess on Wi-Fi with your your system. Um, so you can actually actually use your phone. To go, oh, I want that to go from there to there. Instead of like click, click, draw, 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 or however you imagine it will be, or even touch screen, which I don't know about you, but I'm never good at touch screen because my my fingers, I don't know, it does, doesn't work for me as well. I mean, I, I, I do use it, but I can't wait to get my phone going because that it's, it's, that's how I imagined mixing when I was young. Like, I'm just going to be up here conducting all these sounds, you know? So that's how I imagine it. So I'm going to play you a project, the very short clip. Um, and the sound, bear with me, the sound won't be great because it was really mixed for this particular space. And this is just the re-render of that mix. So it's it's not a true stereo mix in in that fashion, but it was for the Harry Potter exhibit in Philly when I think it was last, was it almost a year ago now? Wow. So um, that's when I got introduced to Mountain and Mountain is a complimentary or standalone application for immersive, immersive audio mixing that allows you to actually plug in the CAD descriptions of the room of where you want the sound to be played and the speakers and the speaker specs. So, um, and then it works with Atmos, so I could be mixing in my Atmos suite and then it translates it 
to the room and then spits out the files. And I was, I again, I've said I'm a little cynical at first about these things. I was completely overwhelmingly happy with how it translated. So let me just see if I won't mess this up. Uh, back to my desktop. That looks good. Share. Um, let's let's go to this. I have this handy. Hmm, where did it go? Oh, here it is. So everybody's seeing this here. I hope. Um, yes. Okay. So this is basically the mountain interface that you can see um and it's there it was the castle exhibit if anybody got there i think it's a traveling exhibit so i'm not really sure you have all these different tabs you can set up different presets and things like that and it, it is very tricky um but so you see these are the sources and then the speakers are up here and then the these are the sources the green and uh so it actually allows you to translate what you're doing in 7.1.4 to this particular setup, which, as you can see, is a lot of speakers in lots of different places. So here we go. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, sure. While I'm here, I'm going to, and that's Mountain. While I'm here, I'm going to show you another application that is not as um, defined with like speakers and, and CAD uh, um, drawings and uh, measurements, but it allows you to take the 71.4 and actually spread um, spread the audio in different ways and manipulate it in different ways. We use this, first use this for the planetarium. I know the um, cyclorama down in Atlanta where it's a full, uh, the, the, the picture is a full 360. The audio technically isn't a full 360, but it's close. Um, but this particular uh, example is from the Aquarium of the Pacific, which is a 180 picture and 360 audio. So, and this is called SPAT. This is a uh, works uh, works in conjunction with Atmos as well. So I'm going to stop sharing and get back to the conversation. But you can see there that it even has the floor. So, um, and there's actually a speaker underneath the floor there. So, um, so that was a very interesting way of using, and that was really based more on energy. I think you could take that from the movie versus specific panning, which is mountain. Um, so those are two different ways to show, I hope that answered the museum question. Um, but what's really uh, fascinating for me, and I'll, I, I can, I think I can find it quickly. No, I better not. But uh, the, for instance, if it's a more, a lot of people don't realize that that 
was probably 10 screens stitched together um, in some way. So for us, when you're t- you're talking about panning and stuff like that, when we're working, we actually work from a quick time that has all the panels shown. So I can actually, but when I'm doing that in the room, I actually put on my TV screen or my LED screen, big screen in the front of the room, I actually put behind you, in front of you, back, because we were doing a, a 360 for the Army Museum once. And I remember that I got so into it that I completely forgot that, oh yeah, that screen's behind me. That's not, you know, so I always leave cues, visual cues, and I'm just imagining it until I get to the space or I get told that, oh yeah, that's not working. That's great. Uh, we got a bunch of questions stacking up. We'll jump into them. Uh, next question. Sure. First one from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe says, I've been using Adobe Audition 5.1 for years, yes, to avoid subscription payments, and specifically for its noise reduction tools. Are there reasons to use more modern noise reduction tools? Are there specific noise reduction tools for surround? Do you think about those or do you just process them in mono? I usually process them in mono Mm -hmm. um, or stereo or dual mono, depending on the clip, because if it's truly stereo and you um, are noise reduction and you split it in half and try to noise reduct only half of it, you're automatically losing 3 dB of your voice. So I I don't do it that way. Um, I either sum the stereo clip or um, or just do on the a multi a multi channel processing. Um, I feel like that there's a lot of really awesome tools right now out. Uh, Along with Isotope, um, I feel like the Audition tools are very good, ex- excellent for what they are in Audition. I I haven't listened to them in several years, like two or three years, so I, I'm not speaking from recent developments. But I found that the algorithms in Isotope proper, uh, either the standalone or uh, integrated with another doll, is far superior Mm-hmm. than the Wolf Edition. Um, but again, I haven't listened in a couple of years. And as far as other tools, even though Waves uh, just dropped a bomb and is going subscription, uh, and which a lot of people are very up in arms about, and I'm kind of like, let's see how this plays out before I get mad. Um, I really have fallen in love with the Claire Waves Pro. Um, I feel that it's a very simple tool especially for video editors um, to use and accomplish fantastic results. And actually, surprisingly enough, Descript, their noise reduction tool is really, I don't know the price point on though. Um, so if you're already using Descript, already have Descript, check it out. Um, let's see. And then there's a new tool in Premiere, I'm sure is an audition too, and I can't remember what it's called, but that's also that's also really good. Um, so I feel like Isotope is getting challenged on all fronts, and they're they were bought what a year ago or two years ago from other people. I can't remember, and I feel like they're going to lose their stronghold if they don't continue to um, to show what they got. Yeah. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, is up with is thirty-two bit float in the workflow? In the workflow, no, because yeah. usually thirty-two bit float is really something we think about a lot when we're talking about capture. So when we're capturing it, we want to make sure that we have the range that we need. Uh, once you get into the processing, I don't know if it's you know, as necessary. Is that is that your sorry, is that? Well, I think actually it mucks things up. Actually, personally, um, I. 
mainly for my side because Pro Tools is not 32-bit float. Um, And so if you record in 32-bit float, you run the risk of some translation issues. Um, If you don't don't, uh, bitrate convert properly coming out of whatever NLE you're in. Yeah. So I, I'd i say use, uh, I love 30-dip float, 30-dip, but, you know, yeah. be, be careful with it. Yeah. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas asks, are tools like the CoreSound Optimite second-order ambisonics with its eight capsules useful for capturing sound being used for surround and immersive mixes? mixes? Yeah. But uh, I feel again, it's it's more important to have a good recording. And ambisonics in the wrong hands are bad. In the wrong. <laughs> well, how are they bad? How are they, what's it? <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of different ways that you could decode. Like I went right. into a mix and they were using ambisonics, and everybody was like, "Ooh, ambisonics!" And I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute, you got your your decode wrong there." You know. Right. So I right. feel like you have to be careful. Um, I love ambisonics. I feel for atmospheres, especially, um, and then like I said, like audiences and plants mics and stuff like that for direct recordings of sound meaning voice especially no you don't need you don't need that maybe in a concert situation um but um but i love it when i get a good recording of ambisonic with that and the higher order that you can go i don't know what order that microphone is is it first order or second order second order i think then that's good the 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 higher the ambisonic uh the more clear you can you can hear the sound, mm-hmm. but first order Amazonics, Amazon properly record it with uh, decoded properly, properly. Sounds yeah. great, but in the wrong hands. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois asks, do you have any passion projects for fun just to see what you can do creatively with your gear or do you stick with primarily client work? Oh, I'm always playing. <laughs> so I, I sometimes take projects just to play and to explore and to learn something. Um, but, you know, I am a business. We are a business. I have a lot of financial responsibilities. So if if it doesn't spark, like if we get one of those projects in, I usually put it to a vote with my team because it's not fair to them to take on a project that is going to use up resources that may put more on them or, you know, something they're not interested in. So, yeah, the answer is absolutely we do. Uh, that's how I've gotten to where I am. Um, but um, but I have to always weigh it with, you know, hey, let's keep the lights on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Mickey Makachow, our friend from Manila in the Philippines, asks, for DX, FO, HFX, and SFX, do you use 3D verbs like liquid sonics, cinematic rooms, or multiple stereo verbs and delays? And how about for MX? Okay, let's take that in a couple parts. I, yes, absolutely use... Um, Multi, multi-channel or immersive verbs. Uh, cinematic rooms is in my uh, arsenal. I also use Stratus 3D and Symphony. Um, back before they all existed, I would upmix verbs if I felt like I needed that, but that was wrought with uh, panning issues. So, because um, you always should have a panning follower master, you know, follower master pan going so that your verb properly moves with whatever audio that you have in the room. Um, 
Is that a good? Yeah. But, you know, there's always new tools and new ways to work. I do use um, mono and stereo verbs as well. It just depends on the application. Um, and then what was the second question? Oh, music. Oh, okay. So music, I mean, often we just get a stereo cue that we have to deal with. And so I'll use new gen Halo upmix uh, a lot. I'm a big fan of that. Um, you have to be careful, though. There's a lot of phasing issues that can be uh, in you know, brought into that. So you have to constantly listen back down to stereo mono to make sure that you're getting the effect that you want and that you're not causing phase issues down the road. But I use that a lot for upmixing stereo. I also tend to put reverb, stereo verbs, or mono verbs as objects. Um, and so I like one of my favorite things that I do, I probably overuse it, is I'll have um, a stereo verb as an object for my music and I'll bring it up and pretend that this is pretend these are the little objects here okay so I bring them up however I want hot not not always pinned up all the way high maybe down here maybe big size so you get like a canopy feel that's very effective especially with uh, orchestral music um mixing a go-go piece right now and um definitely going overboard on the verb there but it's a lot of fun uh, next next question. Juan C. Robles in Mexico City asks, what is your opinion about Apple's spatial audio? Hmm. I know that's very hot topic. A lot of people are up in arms, how they encode, decode, all that other stuff. I'm, I feel empowered by Apple Music's, uh, what they're doing on their platform. I feel that without the push that they did with spatial audio and their um, specifically their binaural uh, profile and spatial, how they're how they're getting the consumer involved is 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 just awesome. I know that a lot of people don't like how their music mixes are being decoded and encoded, um, but again, listen listen to it. Um, I, I don't have it set up personally, but you can set it up through uh, Logic to listen live to their encoding process. So set that up, listen to it, see what it's doing to your mix. Um, eventually, I feel like it's going to be a lot more transparent. And it's, I mean, it, it feels like Apple really made the market, though. I mean, the market expanded by a thousand times when Apple, you know, said yeah. they're going to put it everywhere. Right. And that's why I'm thankful for it. And I'm not so nitpicky mm -hmm. about exactly how oh, it's. Right. That's just my, per you know, there's, yeah. believe me, if you really want to argue it, go to any forum and you yeah. can spend hours doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Kyle Hammond out of Chicago asks, do, how do you source creative, like scripts, talent, and so forth, or do you leave that to the client? Hmm. I'm, I'm sometimes asked to source um Music, uh, usually they give us a, a library to work for or with a composer. I've done both. Um, and I work with them to to create whatever the client wants. Um, sometimes I'm given all the assets in this new project that I'm getting next week. I'm, I'm actually asked to go through all the assets and pick out and exploit those assets first. And then they're going to build the script around it. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, exactly, right? Sound first. Woo! Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that that's a year of like constant talking and relationship building and showing what the medium can do and them being like, wow, this is great. We're holding ourselves back. Let's, let's do sound first. Right. So, um, so it varies. 
I, I don't usually cast. I can cast, but I don't like it. So, yeah. Next question. Marty, from here in the panel, have you come across any projects that really didn't lend itself to immersive sound? No. Uh, There's always verb. There's always verb. I mean, we were given one MP3 recording to do an an immersive, and we made it happen. Um, I feel like if if it's a strict just talking ahead, newsy type thing, and you're not going to add music or sound effects, then, hmm, you know, hmm, make it easy on yourself. But, like— there was a project early on, it was actually pre-Panner days, that I were was only given mono stems to create an immersive mix for a film. And that was very challenging. Yeah. But it worked. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, would Logic be a solid tool to learn surround mixing if you don't have a surround monitoring system? Uh, I'll preface this by saying I'm not familiar with Logic, and so I'm not really sure their surround capabilities versus their object-based mixing capabilities. It's two separate things. Surround is definitely a channel-based medium, and uh, Dolby Atmos is an object-based medium, so you can hear it and play sound anywhere in the sound field. Um, I understand a lot of people are very happy with Logic and that they're finding the tools to be good. They're very integrated. Um, so, but I'm unaware of any bugs or any challenges. Next question. Juan C. Robles, Mexico City. What's the workflow that has worked best for you when planning a surround mix? Surround or immersive? He says surround there, but he might mean immersive. We'll we'll say immersive. Okay, so surround, it really depends on the deliverable specs that I have to give back. Some some clients say nothing but voice in the center. Some some people say, yeah, you can do whatever you want. It, it it's really just depends on the content and the distribution platform, the tech specs. With immersive, I actually plan ahead and sit down with a good old piece of paper and plan, okay, how many, what are my deliverables? I, I look ahead, like, do I have deliverables? And if I don't have deliverables, I always do a basic uh, spread out, whether it's in surround or immersive. I always have some kind of voice group or narration and dialogue group, some kind of NAT sound or SOT group, some kind of music group, some kind of sound effects group, maybe even an atmospheric group and hard effects group. So it just depends on the project and the end deliverables. Um, so that way I can create any M&E, any type of uh, dialogue mix, MD&E that every, anybody wants. That being said, you work backwards from the deliverables to create the platform. So like, for instance, I'm going to try again, share screen. Here we go. Boo. Um, we're going to go right to the renderer. And let's see. So we're here in the renderer, and you see I have my four groups. But this, uh, let me see, uh, input configuration. Yeah, there we go. Oh, you know what? I'm going to switch to Pro Tools because I have this plugin going. It's the same thing. It's just controlling the renderer. Okay. So, yeah, let me grab that window. It's up here. All right, so this is where you set up your your session, okay? So I have my bed set up, 
I'm just going to go ahead and show you that part first. Then I go into objects, and they have these wonderful numbers here so you don't lose count. And then that's how I set that up. And I actually plan, usually plan, okay, so from... For this particular project, I know I'm going to have very little dialogue, so I'll just few, do a few objects in dialogue. And then I don't, maybe I don't want any binaural settings. You can choose off, near, mid, or far. I almost always choose near or off for dialogue because um, it just works better uh, in binaural mode for voice. And then you can have the different groups. Here I have the narrator it's, as its own group versus then the dialogue, it's going to the dialogue group. And then I have a ton of atmosphere going on. I'm using mid for that and tied to the atmosphere group. So I knew I was going to use a ton of Atmos atmosphere. And then we go down and we have hard effects and more hard effects and more hard effects. And then you see, see what you can do. But I actually sit down and plan what I think is, I'm going to stop sharing now. Um, what I plan is going to be a really good um, setup, but I always leave extra objects at the end just in case I planned wrong. That's great. Uh, last question for the hour. Tech equivalent of who's your favorite child, what is your favorite reverb plugin? It changes, but right now I'm in love with Stratus 3D. Oh, very good, very good. Cheryl, mm -hmm. we have to ha we have to have you back. <laughs> Can, okay. Will you come back and visit us and, and answer sure. questions about, about it? It's it, we ran out of time. This uh, is we, fun. Yeah, we could have done this for a couple hours. Uh, you know, but we'll try to keep it in little one hour things. Maybe every once in a while, we'll get you in just to answer some questions because a lot of us. So we're starting to do um, YouTube now for a handful of channels is supporting five dot one. So mm -hmm. we're starting to do. 5.1 experimentation, you know, to YouTube, which is um, unusual right now. And there's a bunch of us that are playing with Atmos and so on and so forth. So we'd love to bring you back in if you're willing to, to maybe in the future. Sure. And I challenge you to build your 5.1 though in the Atmos. Oh, we're going. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. That's, that's the, that's the plan. So, okay. yeah. All absolutely. right. Well, thank so, you for having me. I've enjoyed this and I appreciate so the time. So um, it's just so much fun. I, I, I hope feel like I we, just, we just skipped across the surface. You know, like there's so many other things to look at, especially when you start opening these things up and showing to us. It's just like, oh, this. Is I didn't even get to show you half of what I wanted to show, but I, I think the conversation is really important, um, you know, because you could get lost in, in demo material and not really understand. We, what's we would going like on. to get lost in demo material. We'll, we'll see if we can bring you back and just do, we'll just do um, case studies, maybe the next mm -hmm. time we bring you on and just have, and it's like, this is what we're doing. We're just, you're going to answer questions, but you're going to really, because we just got to, got to know you. And now we're yeah. going to, now we can go through this. It's just fantastic. Well, now that Marty has me set up, we're good to go. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you All so right. much for your time. All thank right. Thank you. you so much. Have a yeah. great day, everybody. All right. See you later. Mm -hmm. And thanks to our panelists. Can't do this without you. Uh, just incredible. Uh, great, great questions. Great answers for the first hour. Um, just really, really appreciate all the work that you did. Thanks to the, uh, the, the, our producers asking great questions, both in the first and second. We had a lot of questions. I know we pushed some back. That was because we had so many. So make sure to vote on those questions. Make sure to ask those questions. If, if we push them back to you, remember they're in your notes. You can just bring them back tomorrow and we'll answer them there in the first hour. And uh, thanks to the amazing team on the back end that made this all work. Um, the development teams, the planning teams, the, the production teams, there's so many people that make this work. This little village that rises up every day 
to uh, to do some great stuff. That was a really great session. So um, so anyway, so th- thanks. I just want to thank specifically Marty for bringing Cheryl on. Um, it was just that was really really a good hour. So thank thanks so much for for doing this. Marty's been bringing a lot of stuff on for the audio team for the audio days, and so he's been doing such a great job. Um, and uh, we we traveled uh, eighty five thousand miles, uh, one hundred thirty seven seven thousand kilometers. Uh, I don't have. Oh, I lost my banana. I had it around here a second ago. We just wanted to introduce the official banana. This is the official banana, eight inches long. Uh, and according to that official banana, 676 bananas for scale. All right, everybody. See you in after hours. Oh, I, I, I could have done that all morning. <laughs> this is the point where we whisper. Stereo. Oh, yeah, wait. You just wait until we have got the five one stream going. Then you'll hear us all over the place. It'll just be like, yeah, like whispering here and there. Looking forward to surround whispering. Surround whispering. It's going to be out whispering. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have we're going to have the voices in different places. We're going to add some reverb, and then we're going to add some little sound effects. Sometimes we'll be whispering in the forest. Sometimes in the city. Sometimes under. The I'm going to mess it all up because I move the boxes around. I demand a cathedral. <laughs> I just want to let you know. <laughs>